Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to this very special episode of Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hi, everybody. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Even more people are feeling anxious and depressed, um, and it's not only with the COVID-19 stuff, but the news in my home province has a lot of people shaken. Yeah, Canada's been quite rocked by it. And I'm aware some have used this service over the past week, so those who don't know about it will know about it now. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the crisis text line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the U.S. or U.K., text HOME to 741-741, and you'll be matched with a volunteer counselor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, textline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. And this week is going to be a very different show. There won't be a lot of banter. In fact... Probably none. We will have discussion, but there won't be our usual banter. We're going to save our voicemails and shout-outs until next week, out of respect for the victims of this recent tragedy. After the events that took place in Nova Scotia on the weekend of April 18th and 19th, 2020, I feel heartbroken, and I needed to connect with my people. Putting this episode together has been emotionally rough, but I felt it was important to cover the impact that this unimaginable tragedy has had on friends and families of the victims, other Nova Scotians, and other Canadians. I was born in Nova Scotia. The province is world-renowned not only for its beauty, history, and amazing food, but for its people who have been lauded and continue to be the warmest and most compassionate culture on the planet. Even though I've lived in British Columbia for many years, my heart belongs to Nova Scotia. That will never change, nor do I want it to. 
We'll give a brief description of the events that took place, but have chosen to hold back many details as the RCMP investigation is still ongoing. One of the details that will not be provided is the name of the gunman. If you're curious about his name, you can Google it, but personally, after the actions he undertook this last weekend, he doesn't deserve to be remembered with a name. His name shall not and will not define Nova Scotia. In the words of Canada's Governor General, this is not who we are. This episode is dedicated to the victims, their families, their friends, and for the many blue nosers far and wide who are in pain due to this tragedy. It's my wish to help folks grieve and learn at least a little bit about a few of the friends and neighbors who were taken away so senselessly. The scope of the rampage was massive, leaving RCMP investigators with 16 crime scenes spread over more than 100 kilometers of the tiny province. As of this recording, one RCMP constable was murdered along with 20 other adults, a 17-year-old girl, and an unborn child. As well in this episode, you'll hear audio taken from various sources with intermittent commentary from Scott and I, but less than usual. We will also provide audio interviews that I had with people who were friends with at least one of the victims and one in particular who lives right across the street from the Porta Peak Beach Road where the rampage began. Not too sure what to even say. I mean, this is just, it, it's all just so, it's all just so, so raw. And, uh, the more I hear, uh, the more it tears my heart apart. One thing that stood out to me in all the conversations was that there's a true concern for others. Some of the folks felt an amount of guilt for feeling badly as they were not directly family and didn't want to co-op the pain of others to draw attention to themselves and away from where they perceive the attention should be, but they're hurting too. It's such a Nova Scotian sentiment. Yeah, yeah. Portapik is a small rural community with around 100 permanent residents in northern Nova Scotia, just over 30 minutes from Truro. The village doubles in size in the summer months as cottage owners come to get away from the larger towns and cities and relax in the quiet and enjoy this piece of, as Nova Scotia license plates say, Canada's ocean playground. Did you say only 100 residents in Portapik? That's right. Wow, okay. And, like, it balloons to 250 in the summer, so... Wow. It's still tiny. I hadn't realized it was that small. That calm was shattered on the evening of Saturday, April 18th, 2020. The gunman and a female friend had some kind of significantly violent altercation that culminated in her being beaten, tied up, and left in a residence he owned in Porta Peak. In a news conference on Friday, April 24th, 2020... Royal Canadian Mounted Police Superintendent Darren Campbell said in a press conference, quote, She did manage to escape. That could well have been the catalyst of events. However, RCMP also said they were not ruling out premeditation on the gunman's part. Terrified for her own life, the woman hid in the woods overnight. Just after 10.26 Atlantic time, RCMP officers attended reports of gunfire on Porta Peak Beach Road off the number two highway. The first victim police encountered was a man who was fleeing after suffering a gunshot wound. The man said he'd been shot while driving by somebody who was driving what appeared to be a police vehicle as it passed him. The vehicle was headed toward the beach, which is the only way in and out of the community. The man was taken to hospital, but has survived. 
RCMP drove down toward the residences closer to the beach and found several bodies on the road and at least three structures on fire and fully engulfed in flames. The situation was larger than any of them could have imagined, and the confusion and concern was evident early on as first responders were on the scene at 10.40 p.m. Here's a clip of the first responders soon after they arrived to find the first gunshot victims, as some portions include long periods of silence and indecipherable transmissions, this has been edited for pacing and clarity. Eighty-six. Go ahead. You guys uh, still considering light flight or uh, looking for light flight for this call? Uh, there possibly could be other victims down by the sea, but police are slowly bringing people out. So there's a structure fire, uh, there's a person down there with a gun, uh, they're still looking for him. The patient we have got shot by him, he was uh, uh, just down there observing the fire, checking out the fire. So there could be other patients around the fire that could be gone already, but we're not on shore. Uh, please, they're staging at the end of the road there on the two, uh, not letting anyone down any further. But uh, it's very vague what's going on down there, but there is for sure multiple patients down there. Um, so want us to stage some, a couple after so I'll clarify what he said there at the end um, if you couldn't quite make it out uh, the dispatcher was asking whether they needed a life flight which is the air ambulance and uh, the responder didn't really answer that but at the end the first responder indicates that it's best to stage extra ambulances just to be safe as they know that there's more people they called them patients down there and they were not aware at all of the scope of the incident at that time yeah it sounds like uh because it's so fresh, they're thinking at that moment it's localized to just that area. The RCMP Nova Scotia Twitter feed shows the first tweet to the public at 10.32 p.m., four minutes after the police arrived at the scene. It reads, hashtag RCMPNS is responding to a firearms complaint in the hashtag Peak area, Peak Beach Road and Bayshore Road and Five Houses Road. The public is asked to avoid the area and stay in their homes with doors locked at this time. Not everybody uses Twitter or monitors it closely, so mm -hmm. many people were unaware of the events taking place in Porta Peak. Yeah, if that were to happen in our neighborhood, I would have no idea because I don't... Twitter isn't something I use for updates. Yeah, and some people there don't even have internet. So mm -hmm. one of the members of our Facebook group, The Umberyard, who we'll refer to as Megan, lives in Porta Peak right across the street from where the RCMP are currently staged at the end of the street. Wow. Unknown to her at the time, she was dangerously close to what was happening. She was kind enough to share her experience from that night, as well as some of her thoughts and personal experiences with us. Here's a bit of my phone conversation with her. That night, we were just taking the dogs out uh, for their kind of before bed walk and saw a massive fire. And so called 911 and, you know, and they said that they were aware. So we assumed it was going to be people we knew because we could see where the fire was and it was right where their houses were. Mm -hmm. So my oldest son and I, he's 15, we jumped the car and went over thinking it was a house fire and we wanted to, you know, help or, you know, do what we could do to help out. And uh, we were just met with a bunch of cops yelling at us to get out of there. 
and I'm stubborn. I didn't realize what was going on, so I kind of hop out, and I'm like, no, it's okay. We're friends with them. We're just going down to see if they can help, you know, trying to explain, and now I know that they were yelling because they were incredibly panicked, but, you know, so they kind of, we just kind of turned around and left, and I remember leaving thinking, like, okay, like, I don't know why they wouldn't let us down, and uh, we got to the end of our driveway and heard a bunch of shots and things, and uh, my brother called me almost immediately after that saying, like, get in your house, because he heard from a friend who had a police scanner what was going on, so my son and I just ran into our house, and that was, that was how we found out, so... It was scary. Where do you go? Do you go to your basement or? Um, well, actually, what we did was we went down, uh, like we came in. I took my youngest out of bed because, well, our our back door doesn't even fully close, let alone have a lock on it. I mean, it just never seemed like a big deal and the kids run in and out all the time. So mm-hmm. um, so my youngest's bedroom is, is kind of past that door. So I woke him up. And uh, I put him in my daughter's room with her. They're nine and, and 12. Um, and I basically just said, you know, turn out the lights and lock your door. I need you guys to stay in here. There's a bad guy outside. Um, I didn't want to say too much and, and scare them. But at the same time, I didn't want them to come out. Um, so, yeah, uh, then my my oldest, uh, he's 15. My son and I, we kind of just, we we weren't really sure what to do. So we just kind of shut the lights down and we went around kind of locking everything up and uh, then just looking out the windows. Um, it didn't occur to me till a couple hours later. I felt like it's so, so horrible that my daughter's bedroom window uh, is facing the roses so they could see the fire and the lights and, you know, and all that. And it, it didn't occur to me at the time that they were looking out the window at everything. Um, so that's, that's definitely something I really, really regret doing. If I had been thinking a bit clearer, I would have put them in, you know, a room on the other side of the house or down in our basement or something. But we have three large dogs who are very loud. So my son and I actually, we just cracked a few windows because we kind of assumed if they heard anyone in the lawn, they would start barking because that's what they do. So we kind of just did that. We like cracked a couple windows on each side. And then we really just kind of, I mean, the two of us were up all night just walking around, kind of just peeking out and, you know, just keeping an eye on everything. Holy shit. So, I mean, when you're dealing with a township of a hundred people, I can only imagine that she must have known the family, the resident. You know everybody. You know literally everyone there. So she, so she would have known who it was whose home was on fire at that point at least. Holy shit. Wow. Megan and I talked a bit about how much she knew about what had gone on, but the police had been tight-lipped about the facts up to that point, even with residents in the area. Mm -hmm. As one would expect, there have been lots of rumors by well-meaning folks just trying to fill in the gaps of information. Yeah. Megan did not want to give any bad information. Here's our next clip. It's hard because my kids would like to go down because they were friends with, you know, people down there and they want to go, you know, see, and they want to know whose houses are gone so they can, you know, do something for people. And it's, it does kind of make it hard that we can't go down. Yeah. I mean, and it's even something as simple as the fact that normally we would walk our dogs down that way to the beach. And, and you know, so it's like, it's strange just having that police presence kind of blocking off that whole side. It's, it's strange. 
And we'll talk to Megan a bit more later. You can hear numbness in her. Like, she's still pretty seemingly calm, but you can tell that this is somebody who's still, like, this is all so fresh. Yeah. You haven't had time to fully process it and, and, and know, uh, and just let it sink into, sink into you and take its, take its toll on you. I mean, my God. I just keep thinking about how small that is. Yes. And her kids knowing residents and who's maybe affected. Was there any talk about how many homes were burnt in that area? I don't know. Uh, at least three. In that area, in Puerto Pico. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. We'll get into more about how she's feeling later on. Yeah. Okay. Early on, police learned of a suspect who would later be identified as the gunman. His home and garages were burning. Uh, were burning there, as well as two replica police cars. Police continued to look for the shooter in two square mile air in the two square mile area throughout the night. RCMP have not said so, but they may have reasonably assumed that the man set his properties ablaze and then had taken his own life inside. Which I yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption. But that's not what happened. At six thirty in the morning, as the sun came up. The woman who'd been hiding in the woods, the companion of his who he'd beaten up and tied up and she'd somehow escaped, emerged from the woods and contacted police. She told them about the gunman and that he had a number of firearms, pistols, and long-barreled weapons. She told them that he may be wearing an RCMP uniform and driving a car that was an exact replica of an RCMP cruiser. Almost nine hours had passed with no sign of the gunman. There had been reports as of this writing, that a police vehicle had been seen driving through a field at some point that night. At 8.55 a.m., police identified the suspected gunman over Twitter, putting out a bolo to all police agencies in the province. As well as victims found inside and outside some of the port homes, police later discovered murdered residents in the rubble of some of the burned-out homes. As of this recording... It has been confirmed that 13 people lost their lives in Porta Pic in what has been called the first cluster of shootings. Those people are Lisa McCulley. She was a 49-year-old school teacher at DeBert Elementary and the mother of two children. It was later revealed that she lived on a property previously owned by the gunman. She was well-loved as a fun-loving, creative, energetic, and giving person. Jamie and Greg Blair they, quote, ran a firm that provides service and sales and installation of natural gas and propane units. Their two young sons, 12 and 10, hid in the house as their parents were being murdered. Later escaping to a neighbor's house, the boys are now in the care of their grandparents. Joanne Thomas and John Zoll, they had lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico for a couple of decades before moving back to Nova Scotia where Joanne was from. A GoFundMe page set up for their two sons says, both of them were volunteers at St. James Presbyterian Church often, and Joanne was the head of the Laundry Project, a nonprofit group that helps people in need to have clean laundry. Peter and Joy Bond, a retired couple, are mourned by their extended family, including two sons, Harry and Corey, who live in Lunenburg County, where I'm from, members of an off-road group called Six Pounders Chapter that Harry is the captain of, are heading up the GoFundMe campaign to cover the family's expenses for the next little while. 
Don Madsen, and Frank Gullinchen. They'd recently retired to Nova Scotia from Oshawa after Don retired from work in a long-term care facility. They dreamt of moving to Nova Scotia, and these were supposed to be their golden years. Jolene Oliver, 39, Aaron Tuck, 45, and 17-year-old Emily Tuck. The gunman murdered the family of three in their home. Emily has been described as a spark plug, full of creative energy. She was the youngest of all of the victims. She was learning to fix cars with her dad and even knew how to weld. She also played violin, or fiddle as we East Coasters call it. Recently, musical Nova Scotians, to stay connected and entertain others, have taken to Facebook, creating a group called Ultimate Online Nova Scotia Kitchen Party COVID-19 Edition. Emily's dad, Aaron, uploaded a video of her in their home, wearing pajama pants, socks, and a Back to the Future t-shirt as she played a song on her fiddle called In Memory of Herbie McLeod, written, written by the late Cape Breton fiddler Jerry Holland. This was the first song she'd learned to play. The video has been shared many times. In the video, proud dad Aaron can be heard off-camera saying, your, con- your contribution to the COVID-19 kitchen party, to which Emily responds, Herbie McLeod, and begins to fiddle. When she's done the sad song, Emily looks into the camera playfully and says, There's some fiddle for you. <laughs> There's some fiddle for you. We'll link to the entire video of Emily playing her song on uh, darkpoutine.com. Tonight on the uh, the memorial that was on CBC, we watched some other Nova Scotia musicians playing along with her to that video. It was quite stirring. Oh, man. We'll learn more about Emily Tuck when I read the message that the mother of her boyfriend sent me after the recording of this episode with Scott. The final person we have to speak about who died in Port-a-Pic that night is a man named Corey Ellison. Corey was 42 and had difficulties with his vision. He'd been visiting his dad along with his brother, Clinton, when they saw the glow from a large fire nearby. Corey went to investigate the fire and his brother Clinton followed later, finding his brother's body on the road. After seeing a flashlight coming toward him, Clinton fled into the woods where he also hid for the entire night, fearing he would be killed. And I've seen some video of him. CBC interviewed him, and uh, he is a very, very traumatized man. Oh, God, I bet. Twelve hours after the initial 911 calls from the Porta Peak area, a second series of 911 calls began coming from an area over 40 kilometers north near Wentworth, Nova Scotia. This was on Hunter Road in Glenholm. There, the gunman went to a home of two people he knew, Sean McLeod, 44, and Alana Jenkins, 36. Both were corrections officers. The gunman murdered them in their home and then set fire to the house. Sean and Alana have been described as simply nice people. From a global news report, quote, Taylor McLeod, Sean's daughter, told the Canadian press the couple deeply loved and cared for her, her little sister and Taylor's daughter. They would have done anything for anybody, and they always made sure people were welcome in their home, she said. A neighbor, retired fireman Tom Bagley, saw the fire and rushed over to see if he could help. This is when the gunman shot him. Bagley has been described as someone who was always willing to help, and it was surprising to none that knew him that he died trying to help someone else. The gunman then drove to another home on Highway 4, where he knocked on the door. The people there knew him but did not answer. 
They called 911, letting dispatchers know that he had driven away in what appeared to be a police vehicle and been carried on, carrying a long-barreled firearm. Wow. The gunman drove south along Highway 4 where he spotted Lillian Hislop out for a morning walk. The gunman shot Lillian dead and left her on the roadside. She was unknown to him. McLean's magazine quoted Lillian's friends saying, quote, she was always friendly and cheerful, and she and her husband volunteered regularly in their community, helping set up dinners at the local recreation center. End quote. The gunman continued south. In two separate incidents, he used his fake cruiser and RCMP uniform to pull over two cars, murdering the drivers of each. One of the victims from the fake police stops was 55-year-old VON nurse Heather O'Brien. Her daughter, Darcy Dobson, wrote in a public Facebook post, quote, a monster murdered my mother today, murdered her without a second thought. The pain comes and goes in waves. I feel like I'm outside of my own body. This can't be real. At 9.59 a.m., she sent her last text message to our family group chat. By 10.15, she was gone. She drove down the same street in the same town she drives through every single day. She was kind. She was beautiful. She didn't deserve any of this. Darcy went on to say, I want everyone to remember how kind she was, how much she loved being a nurse, the way her eyes sparkled when she talked to her grandchildren, and the way she loved Christmas. Let those things define her, not the horrible way she died. A beautiful sentiment. Another person pulled over and killed by the gunman was a newly pregnant woman and mother of a toddler and also a VON nurse. Her name was Kristen Beaton. Her husband, Nick, who has been vocal about ensuring proper PPE for nurses during COVID-19, later posted, quote, She cried every day before and after work, scared to bring this COVID home to her son she loved more than I could even imagine anyone could love one person. We need to be her voice now. So please, for Kristen's sake, protect the ones who are protecting us. Oh my God. Oh my God. The gunman turned onto highway number two and made his way toward Shubenacadie. Next, the gunman initiated a confrontation between two RCMP officers in separate incidents, Constables Chad Morrison and Heidi Stevens. Here's some detailed audio of what happened next, according to RCMP Superintendent Daryl Campbell at a press conference on April 24, 2020, as obtained by Global News. So during that period of time, it was uh, both Constable Chad Morrison and Constable Heidi Stevenson. They were, they were on shift and working out of the RCMP Enfield Detachment on the morning of April 19th. Both were communicating on their police radios with each other, and they had arranged to make a meet. Constable Morrison was waiting for Constable Stevenson at Highway 2 and Highway 224. What appeared to be a marked police vehicle then approached Constable Morrison. As they had prearranged to meet at that location, Constable Morrison thought that the vehicle was Constable Stevenson. The approaching police vehicle was actually driven by the gunman. The gunman pulled up beside Constable Morrison and immediately opened fire. Constable Morrison received several gunshot wounds, and he began to retreat from the area, driving his vehicle away from the scene. He notified other officers and dispatch that he had been shot and that he was en route to an EHS station, emergency medical attention. During that time, Constable Heidi Stevenson was nearby, believed to be driving northbound on Highway 2, while the government was traveling southbound on Highway 2 at that time. At that point, 
Both vehicles collided head-on. Constable Stevenson engaged the gunman. The gunman took Constable Stevenson's life. He also took Constable Stevenson's issued sidearm and her magazines. A passerby had stopped and was fatally shot by the gunman. This was Joey Weber. He'd just gone out to run some errands for his family, which includes three young daughters. The gunman set both Constable Stevenson's vehicle and the replica police vehicle on fire. He left the scene driving south on Highway 224 in the passerby's vehicle, which was described as a silver SUV. The gunman traveled south on Highway 224 for a very short distance, where he entered the home on the east side of Highway 224. That home happened to be the home of a woman known to the gunman. This was Gina Goulet. She was a 54-year-old mother and denturist from Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia. The gunman shot and killed that female resident. The gunman then removed the police clothing that he was wearing at the time and transferred his weapons to the female victim's vehicle, which was a red Mazda 3. The gunman traveled south on Highway 224, coming to the big stop Irving in Enfield. While he's at the gas pumps, one of our tactical resources came to the gas station to refuel their vehicle. When the officer exited the vehicle, there was an encounter and the gunman was shot and killed by police at 11.26 in the morning. The distance that the gunman had traveled from the first shooting of Constable Morrison to the encounter with police at the big stop was approximately 23 kilometers. Oh, holy shit. I just, I can't even fathom. Here, Constable Morrison sees this other car coming because he's arranged a meetup with Heidi Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And it's not her at all. It's the gunman who just immediately opens fire on him. And I don't know how he got away, but uh, good for him. Yeah, there seems to be uh, a lot of confidence in the killer. Mm -hmm. He seems to um, not have a lot of fear about getting up. I, I guess that's part of being in a police vehicle where in a police uniform, you really feel like while I'm in this uniform and vehicle, uh, I can do what I want. People will think I'm an officer. Yep. And so... Uh, Wow. He's just completely reckless, not caring about who. Just, yeah, he just seemingly just doesn't give a shit who he kills. He may have targets, but in between targets, like he's, he doesn't, it, it's, he's just killing indiscriminately because there's no need to pull people over and shoot them. No. And no reason to shoot somebody out walking, you know? Yeah. Like these people aren't in his way. They're not. Heidi Stevenson, the RCMP officer who died, was a 23-year veteran of the RCMP. And along with her regular duties, she had participated in many special RCMP-related events, including being involved with the musical ride. She was also an athlete, an athlete, a wife, a daughter, and a proud mother. Born on July 11, 1971, Heidi grew up in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. She had been active in the 4-H club when she was young. Her obituary reads, Heidi loved her chosen career. There was no doubt in her mind when she graduated from Acadia that her next step was going to be the RCMP. Reaching that goal wasn't always easy, but her incredibly strong work ethic, driven personality, and resilient nature got her to exactly where she wanted to be. It continues, Heidi was the neighbor who, wa who waved at everyone. 
She was the busy parent who volunteered at school. She was the friend who delivered cinnamon buns and homemade bread. She was the second mom to many kids who came over to play. She was a gentle smile when you needed it most. Heidi made an impact on this world and words can't begin to express how much she will be missed. And her fellow officers have to investigate her death and what happened. I know uh, I have some friends who are in the RCMP back in Nova Scotia and uh, I was I was texting with one of them the other day and, and uh, just asking him how he was doing. And uh, he said he was having a really rough time. And then he started just one word answers. And uh, he said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little busy because I'm doing security at one of the scenes. So uh, it is a small province. Yeah, and an even smaller uh, township, townships. It, it's just, you know, you hear officers talk about when another officer gets killed, how difficult it is on them. Now imagine that officer is 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 a teammate of yours, a co-worker, yeah. a close friend of yours. Well, we'll take a break right here and come back with some exclusive audio reactions from some friends of a few of the victims and members of nearby communities. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. First, let's hear some more from Megan. Uh, as I heard the gunman owned property in the area, I asked her whether she'd known him. Here's what she had to say. I knew him to wave at him, but I didn't really know him, you know, just yep. one of those people you see around that you, you know, you, you know, and you'd say hi, but I didn't really know him. No. But still, it's someone in your community and you never think that someone in your community is going to murder your friends. Yeah, exactly. And to still think that it's somebody you know enough to recognize and wave to. Yeah. Like, like it's not a stranger. No. There's still some level of connection, uh, no matter how small it is, that is quite impactful. You would not be thinking yeah. that another member of your wonderful, peaceful little community is going to go about conducting such a horrible crime. Next, uh, Megan and I had a conversation about how her children, who are 9, 12, and 15, are dealing with the traumatic events that happen so close to home. How are your kids doing with all this? Uh, I think um, all three of them are kind of, of different. And actually, I have my, my two stepchildren as well, like my husband and I have five in total. Um, they live in Deberta about 20 minutes away and we're also quite close and pretty badly affected as well. So it kind of, it kind of got everybody, uh, my guys here, um, my oldest son lost his friend, Emily. Here, Megan's referring to Emily Tuck, the 17 year old girl who lost her life with her parents. They were close. Like she, you know, I, it's always kind of like a fixture around and it was, it was pretty sad. I know until we, we found out about her, he had been kind of walking like over 
talking to the cops and uh, wasn't really getting any information. But I was really lucky because actually, uh, I believe it was a cousin of hers from West somewhere actually took the time to call me to let me know when they found out, which was really nice. So he's, you know, he's sad. His best friend since they were little kids was Emily's boyfriend. So the three of them were, you know, kind of just a, that was like their group. Yeah, like a trio. Yeah, you know, teenagers. So, you know, the three of them were, were always around. And I know it's been, uh, Damien is his, Emily's boyfriend name. It's been really hard on uh, on them, on uh, Remy and, and Damien. So I think with them, he was really angry at first, and now it's just sad. You know, they're a bit older, so it's it's different. My daughter uh, was really good friends with um, Lisa's, Lisa's daughter, Alex. Here, Megan is referring to Lisa McCulley, who was the teacher who taught elementary school in nearby DeBert. My daughter, Tia, was over there um, a lot. Like, her and Alex were together all the time. I mean, so Tia was kind of a fixture at Lisa's house. So it's been, I think it's been really difficult to understand for her. She hasn't been able to um, get in contact with us yet. So she's, you know, she's worried, but I think there's also kind of like, um, just, I think a loss of like a sense of security as well. So it's, it's kind of both things. It's trying to process that, you know, this happened to her friend and this happened to this woman that she was, you know, close to. Lisa told me, I don't know how many times that Tia was just like a second daughter and she loved having another girl in the house and, you know, and, and then on top of that, she also has this thing that happened and, you know, doesn't really feel safe. So it's been, it's been difficult. And then with the COVID-19, she can't go, you know, I can't bring her friends over or, or anything like that to help her out. So it's hard. Yeah. It's such a double whammy for everybody. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so much like, it's so much more to process than just having someone pass away, which is horrible enough. Mm -hmm. I know my youngest, my nine-year-old, he's kind of like the first like the first night I mean he was obviously pretty worried and it's kind of funny because he seems mostly like he'll go you know three or four hours and he'll be his normal self and like you know acting like nothing happened and then he'll ask a question about something and uh and then he'll get kind of you know weepy and and be upset for 15 minutes and then it's almost like he snaps out of it and he's himself again for a couple hours but then it it's so it's kind of like hitting him in these like waves almost mm -hmm. if that makes sense it's like he has these little bits yep. and then he's upset and then he kind of goes about and plays but he hasn't been playing outside he's not going outside since it happened and he's been sleeping in our living room because he doesn't want to sleep in his room so i think it's the same it's he's not feeling like he's secure it doesn't help uh, my husband works out of province and he's he up in uh, northern ontario in forestry so he wasn't here so I think that was really hard on my youngest as well. You know, I, it's just, it's different not having your, you know, like your your dad there, like who's the person who normally, you know, I don't think I inspired as much confidence maybe as he would have. I mean, they've been talking on the phone lots and they've got plans to beef up our home security. So we'll see how that goes. My youngest thinks we need to install lasers, but we've been telling him it's not that realistic. Oh. <laughs> Um, I'd love lasers at my place too. It would be great, but yeah. So I think with him, it, losing people is more of kind of an abstract concept to him right now, but I think he's definitely 
feeling that loss of his kind of sense of security in his home, definitely. Is anybody offered the folks in your neighborhood like trauma counseling or anything like that? Or Yes, actually. Um, like so many people, like his, um, their teachers have reached out. I mean, we've had so many people reaching out and offering help. I know my daughter has taken advantage of Kids Help Phone. And, and no, actually, I mean, geez, the guy installing our solar panels next spring heard it on the news and gave us a call. I mean, we've like so many people that I wouldn't have expected to reach out, have reached out. And uh, so it's, it's been, everyone's been really supportive. Yeah. You mentioned uh, there being a double whammy in there and it's just, it hasn't even really crossed my mind uh, how that impacts this tragedy because yeah, it, 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 these are the times when you really need to go be with people, be with friends and commiserate together and share and cry together. And you can't. Uh, Megan and I talk about that a, li- a bit uh, in the next clip, but oh, uh, great. the one thing that stood out to me is um, I, I know what Nova Scotians are like. There would be somebody in your kitchen with a bottle of rum or something like that. And you, you know, <laughs> everybody would have a good cry together and a few drinks or whatever. Um, there would yeah. be there would be a lot of togetherness at a time like this, especially in a place like Nova Scotia, where everybody is so close and so kind and yep. so caring. People would be in your house all the time. You know, it would. Yeah. I always hear about how Canadians are so nice and kind, but I hear like Nova Scotia is like next level kindness. Yeah. But we'll hear a little more here about how COVID-19 has affected her in, in her grief and and affecting the community. Mm-hmm. The isolation thing is strange. I mean, like I said, my husband uh, works in Northern Ontario, so uh, he only left a little while ago. So we're actually still in our, we are supposed to be completely isolated because, I mean, we live with him, obviously. So um, like, I mean, even my sister came and dropped us off a cooler full of cook meals which was amazing but it just it's hard because she has to kind of leave it in our driveway and you know and uh like i said everyone is has been very supportive and it's it's been great in that sense but it the whole isolation thing is still it, it does it's it feels like we should be gathering with lots of people and it's just not happening so it, it feels a bit strange to not and that's I guess like the natural reaction is that's normally what we would do and it just it's weird because we can't so in one sense I guess I was kind of okay with it because I'm, I'm kind of glad that my kids aren't hearing stuff because I've been trying to keep them away from the news and and I feel like if we were around they'd have heard more about it but in the other sense I mean you know they can't have their family over to be with them so it's yeah it's tough I would guess her husband can't even just say, oh shit, I got to fly back because he, if he's, if his job has him around other people, he'd have to be quarantined that's, before coming back. That's right. He'd have to quarantine at home, probably in yeah. another room. And- a whole other layer uh, of challenge where, because your, your want is to just rush and support your family members. Yep. And not even being able to do that. Holy shit. I asked Megan what uh, she thinks life looks like after this. Mm. Honestly, I have no idea. Um, Like I said, uh, people like my family has been great and dropping us off meals. And I think short term, um, we're just 
I think we're just going to have, you know, take our time at home. Um, I, the thing is, is it's, it's kind of hard to make plans or kind of, I guess, figure out where we're going from here right now. Um, just because we don't really know where the world is going right now. So it's, yeah, so it's kind of, kind of tough. My God. Yep. Although I've never been to Portapec myself, I've been in the area many times. It's really beautiful. And uh, I asked Megan to describe Portapec for anybody who may not have ever been there and is thinking about visiting at some point. If you wanted people who are from away, who don't know about Portapec, before this all happened, mm -hmm. how would you have described your community? Oh my goodness. I would say quiet. Like I said, I've been out here about four years and it's kind of everything we were looking for in a place i mean we kind of have like freedom to do our own thing it's peaceful our neighbors are all amazing um it's beautiful out here i i mean before this i never worried about the kids kind of taking off and doing their thing like it was the kind of place i really wanted to raise them in because it kind of reminded me of where i grew up you know, like, I like that they could uh, go walk to the beach, and I like that our house is surrounded by woods, and and uh, I guess it was just, it was a really kind of lovely family place, and, and it was quiet, which is really what we were looking for, was, was a quiet place where we could have lots of animals and and kind of just do our own thing, you know, it was just very free, I suppose. But it is, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I don't think there's going to be quite as many long rambles the kids go on. <laughs> I will be accompanying them, I think, for quite a while. There's never been anything like this in Nova Scotia or pretty much anywhere else. In a million years, I never, ever would have thought. Like, you know, it just was not something that could have happened. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the scary thing, too, is is that was the the appeal of this place too for me especially like I moved out of town to come out here because that is really how I wanted to live how I wanted to you know raise my kids to have that freedom that I had when I was a kid to just take off and you know and go out for three to four hours and you know pack a few snacks and then come back before dark and and it's just I mean that's that's what we were looking for so I think it'll get back to that, just not right now, you know. It's all so raw, so raw. It, it, this isn't a time when it's really possible to predict uh, the next day, let alone six months from now. Uh, Megan talked a little bit about how these events have affected her and how she's holding up. I see people's pictures on the news and it feels like it's not really real. Like it almost feels like we're not in real life right now. So yeah. it was this awful thing. And I, I don't think it's really sunk in. And I don't think that's just us. I think for a lot of people around here, it's kind of, it kind of still doesn't feel like it's real what's going on. So There's a lot of processing left to do, I think. Yeah. I think that's what it is, is it's going to, it's going to take a lot of time. I know, um, my little brother passed away a few years ago and it's funny kind of because I remember thinking like the first even two or three weeks I felt like I was okay with it and then after that like one month mark hit that's kind of when it 
when it hit, you know, and that's when mm-hmm. it kind of, that's when I really started, it was bad and I was grieving and, and all that. So I'm thinking maybe this might be kind of how it was with my brother. Like it's, you know, I, it just doesn't feel like it's, it's happening, but I know at some point it's going to hit and it's going to hit the kids and it's, you know, and that's going to happen and we're going to have to deal with it at that point. Yeah. So I'm just trying to kind of, I guess, make sure the foundations are in place now so that when we're really kind of feeling that hit that we can, we can deal with it better. If that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And she's spot on um, because soon after a trauma, your brain is just in triage. It's hyper-focused on what do I need to do to, to uh, get this done? And what about my kids? And what about this? It's not until things settle down, be it weeks or months, once uh, all of the police presence is gone, once all the police tape is down, once the media is all left and regular life starts to kick back in, that's when it hits. That's when it hits because you're not in this coping, um, uh, coping phase. You're in this phase of real life is coming back in and now I have to actually process. Now I have to actually deal with all of this. And I think it's her, her brother passing is a great comparison. In our last clip with Megan, she talks about her friend, Lisa McCulley, the school teacher who was murdered by the gunman that night. She was her close friend. I'm sure you've seen like lots of stuff about her on social media and the news, but she really was like the most amazing, positive person you, you could have met. Um, she, I'm, I'm realizing more and more like that. I feel like the way she made, I feel like she somehow, and I don't know how she ever found the time, but I feel like she somehow gave like 100% of herself all the time to every person. It's so hard to even describe her. Like I have bad social anxiety. Um, And I know sometimes I probably come across maybe as like standoffish, but the first time she came over and talked to me and I was kind of standing off by myself and she just walks up and starts talking and she's so intuitive and she's so friendly. And I feel like she just kind of knows exactly what to do. Um, Our kids, uh, my son and her son played sports together and our daughters actually both played sports together as well, hockey and volleyball. And, uh, And she was so great because she knew being at the rink was hard for me sometimes because I just, the noise and stuff, I just, it wasn't always a comfortable place for me to be. And she would just walk up and she'd look at me and she'd be like, this is a space day. And she'd know like I kind of needed to sit by myself. And then, or she'd walk up and she'd look at me and she's like, oh, okay. And then she'd, you know, she'd know I was fine and she'd sit and talk to me and it was great, you know, but she was so like, she was, she was just so understanding and intuitive of everything and i'm like i said i'm realizing kind of seeing all these posts that she never wasn't fully giving what she had halloween's my favorite holiday and the last three halloweens she spent with my family um like her and her kids would come to my father-in-law's house and uh we'd all go trick-or-treating together and it was always like kind of our tradition it was a lot of fun and and uh it was just it was nice having that person that you knew was so supportive and so wonderful and that I could call up at any time and she'd always be like 
right there and, and enthusiastic about talking about whatever or doing whatever. And it didn't matter what idea you threw at her or it was always the best. Let's do it. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, it was, she was really, really wonderful. She sounds like a great friend. She, she was. And like I said, she was such a great friend to everybody. I don't know how she, I don't know how honestly she had the time in a day to, to do this. And I know sometimes, um, you know, especially sometimes after someone passes and everybody kind of lauds them and, and stuff, but she really was like, she really was just, just such a strong force everywhere she went. I know, um, even if she was upset about something or wanted to vent about something and she'd text and say, want to have coffee. I mean, I can't count the amount of times I'd go over thinking we were going to have coffee and she'd be waiting with like travel mugs because we were going to power walk and have our coffee because she you know, was frustrated about something or like she was just, she didn't stop, you know, like it was, it was just, I, I honestly don't, I don't know how she, how she could have like done all the things she did and been so much to so many people, but she really was like, yeah, she was, she was just, she was absolutely, absolutely lovely. And she just, uh, she just gave so much to so many people. Uh, she made my daughter feel so special. Like every time Tia was over there, I'd always get a text saying Tia did this and it was wonderful. And, you know, and just, she was so positive and reaffirming and just, yeah, just real. She's just a really, really good friend. And she was a really good mom. That's the kind of person I always aspire to be. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I would be exhausted living her life for two days, but she seemed to just thrive off it. Like, and I've really actually, I've enjoyed kind of reading everything because now kind of reading everything that everybody's posted i mean this was i mean it, it was just me it, it was i think her whole life just everybody was just so much to her and she was so much to them you know like she just she's just the most understanding like friendly person i wanted to really uh, thank megan for sharing her story with us and we appreciate that you took the time to do it such a ter during such a terrible time in your life yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Hearing her describe her friend, you both were talking about how it's like, um, it's all, it's always the, the good ones, you know, it's always the ones that everybody wants to be. I remember when my aunt passed away from breast cancer many years ago, and I remember my mom describing her and it was like, oh, she was the white sheep of the family. Because it's a fam it was a family of it's a family of black sheep, and the white ones stood out. But it's like you know, it's all it's always the one. It's like ah, oh, God, it's always the good ones. It seems like Gina Goulet was the final victim of the gunman. She was a two-time cancer survivor and was full of life and known for her broad smile. My lifelong friend from Bridgewater, Dennis Woodworth, posted on fe Facebook that he'd known Gina and was devastated. I reached out to him by phone and spoke with him in Cuba. This is where he's currently living mm. and locked down in his home due to COVID-19. 
I asked him to share mm. a bit about his feelings on learning about Gina's murder and tell me a little bit about Gina. And here's what Dennis had to say. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know her. I was more numb than I was anything. I tried to, I mean, Tanya was very upset. She's a very good friend of mine. They were very close and they were traveling buddies to the Caribbean. That's where we met Gina and Tanya and Brian and Kim. And, um, you know, he, I told her, I said, I just won't give this guy 30 seconds of my life to mourn. I'll just celebrate her life and remember her for all the great times we had and all the fun that we had with each other as a group. And she was the life of the party. She was had a huge smile all the time. She, you know, she was a single mom, you know, raised her daughter and did a great job. And Amelia's fantastic. And, you know, you see something like this and, the question why isn't enough is how can we try to prevent things like this in the future? Yeah. And she loved horses. She was, her life was very therapeutic around horses and her daughter and her friends. And the thing is she was a denturist as well as him. So it's, it's evident that at some point there must've been some kind of conflict or, um, that caused him to put her on that list, you know? So have you heard about a list or something like that? Cause I haven't heard any of that. Yeah, no, I've been told that now it's hard to verify, but, uh, and I was told by pretty reliable sources. I mean, this guy was mentally very much and, and planned. I mean, it's planned. So, so anyway, to see someone like Gina and many others, get in the way of that idiocy. I, I use a phrase, Mike, all the time, and, and, you know, Glenn doesn't understand it sometimes, that I'd rather live for 50 years than exist for 100. Life's about living, life's about experience, life's about creating something with the energy that you have in the world and doing something as hopefully as positive as you can out of what you do. And you learn those lessons very quickly when you see some of these happen. Uh, the power is in the story and, and remembering people for who they were and what they represented. And, you know, it's just amazing to even think that somebody would be as selfish and to even consider something of what, what he did. But, I mean, she gave me a ton of great memories that we had a, a great time and there was never a conflict or argument. I mean, it was always just, you know, enjoying each other's company as a group. And, you know, we always did things, um, you know, whether it was, you know, concerts or events or campgrounds or whatever. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just a shame. And, and this is affecting, you know, you talk about the ripple effect. The immediate 20 people that's killed, but the ripple effect of the hundreds or even the thousands of people that it affects. And then psychologically as a province and as a country, you know, the country we live in, you never expect to hear little town, you know, Nova Scotia, idiot goes off and kills 20 people. You just don't ever expect to be living in that kind of society. 
Dennis is pretty good egg. He he puts things uh, the way he wants to. I think it's good. Yeah, I really like the cut of his jib. I, I really like that the thickest accent, uh, Nova Scotian accent we've heard, is from a guy in Cuba. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we grew up around the corner from each other, two doors down, in fact, kind of. Mm-hmm. We hung out a lot when we were kids. He's in Cuba as his work has taken them there. His site, CaribbeanBaseballGoodwillTours.com, talks more about what he does, and it says... Uh, We take players, coaches, and families to experience what most would only dream about. Our goal is to give Canadians and Americans a life learning experience that includes taking much needed baseball equipment to countries that are considered the very best in the world with talent, but are very deprived in availability and equipment. Well, that's brilliant. Uh, He does that. uh, It's not just baseball. He does it with some other team sports as well, but Dennis has always been a kind of a sporty guy and, uh, and it's really cool to see something that fits him so well. And uh, and like I say, he's a really kind guy too. Yeah, I got that sense here in him. Yeah, he's a, he's a connector like you and I are, you know, like mm-hmm. he likes to connect people together mm-hmm. and get people on the right page with each other and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So um, again, to learn more about what Dennis does, CaribbeanBaseballGoodwillTours.com. I spoke with another Yumber Yarder. Cheryl Higgins, who has connections to a couple of the victims, and we talked about her experiences. She and I are also connected through another of my oldest friends, Cyril Vino, who she met teaching high school uh, in the first years that she was doing that. Hmm. Here's what Cheryl had to say. Where were you when you first heard about all this stuff going on? Well, we just woke up, actually. It was Sunday morning, so we slept in a little bit. It was a little after nine, I guess. And woke up, flipped over my phone, and there was news that there was an active shooter in Port Pic the night before. And so, you know, it was alarming that they didn't have him yet. But, you know, in Nova Scotia, usually when something like that happens, you know, they take care of it and we don't have to worry about it. So I didn't really give it, you know, I paid attention to it and I was a little concerned, but I didn't really think that it was in my backyard. Yeah. And when you realized it was in your backyard, what was it that, you know, tipped that off? Well, I think that, like, we had decided to just take a quick trip to the pharmacy. You know, I didn't think that there was, we were in, you know, any danger to go do that. So that was actually the first time I'd gone into a store, um, you know, since the COVID lockdown. So I was already kind of on edge from there. Um But I had, you know, it was a five-minute drive, really, between my house and there that we became aware of how close the situation was. You know, messages from friends that there were helicopters searching. And then I was in the pharmacy, and they locked down the pharmacy. And I was like, oh, okay, this is not good. Yeah, that's scary. Pretty pretty quick drive home after that. Yeah. Um, And then when you started to hear... uh, did you start to hear on the news about things first or was it uh, other people messaging you to tell you that things were going on? Social media, mostly things were popping up there and, you know, the RCMP Twitter was updating and we could hear sirens um, from our living room. So we live you know, pretty close to the highway. So it was, you could hear the sirens. Whew, indeed. 
Cheryl, too, uh, talked to me about how COVID-19 has added an extra layer to making things harder to deal with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nova Scotians just want to love each other at times like this and be closer to families and grieve together. Here's what she had to say. You know, my mom said to me last night, uh, my dad passed away two years ago, so she's living alone um, in Cape Breton. And it's especially right now, you know, we just want to be together and we can't, we can't do that. Yeah. Cheryl is also close with uh, Tom Bagley's daughter. And Tom Bagley was the fireman who ran uh, toward um, Sean McLeod and Alana Jenkins' home as it was on fire and was shot dead by the gunman. Mm. Cheryl contacted Charlene to let her know that we were going to chat. And Charlene wrote a message for us. And here's Cheryl reading it to us. I asked her what she wanted people to know. And uh, her response was, he was the type of person who would give their shirt off their back, as they say. He loved to make people laugh. He always wanted to help someone. He loved us all so much. His grandkids were his life. He was so proud of them. He made any guy I dated have have huge shoes to fill. Uh, He made me see what a real husband and father should be. He did everything to make my mother's life easier. He loved her so much. He was always my hero. It makes me so proud to see that everyone else sees it too. Holy shit. That's about as direct as it can get. Yeah. Wow. Cheryl also taught math to Emily Tuck, the 17-year-old victim of the shooting. Um, So she knew her as well. Oh my God. Reasonably citing privacy concerns as Emily was a minor uh, and the way that Cheryl knew her, she shared a post that the school had put out about Emily, the gunman's teenage victim. Mm. Our school put out a post about her and I thought that they kind of captured it nicely, that she was an intelligent, energetic, talented and beautifully unique student. Uh, Spunky, I think is a good word for her. You know, and she kind of defied the stereotypes by pursuing her dream of working in the construction industry um, and still going to school. So that's something that I just learned about her. I didn't actually know that she was she was doing that, which is so awesome. Cheryl and I talked about connections and how Nova Scotians are typically only one or two degrees of separation from each other. Yeah, yeah. Now, during these latest events, it's become more evident. Many of the victims are friends of friends. The scope of it has us all shaken. Cheryl sent me a link to a documentary made by a friend of hers, filmmaker Kara Jones Speaks. Kara's film, Familiar Stranger, is about an inspirational woman from Zimbabwe who came to Nova Scotia to pursue higher education against all odds and now fits right in with the other blue nosers. Oh. I want to thank Cheryl too for uh, sharing with us a little bit. Yeah, Cheryl, thank you. Holy cow, thank you. And I'm so sorry for what you're having to go through. A call went out to Nova Scotians near and far to light a candle for the victims of this awful thing the evening after. And interestingly, after the candles were lit, the sky responded with one of the most beautiful sunsets that many can recall, Mm. lighting itself afire with beautiful scarlet and purple hues. It's amazing. There were pictures all over Facebook of it. Oh, wow. Uh, Interestingly, tonight after the memorial that was on CBC, the sky did that again. Really? Yeah. So, I don't know. (sighs) You know, I I would like to think there's something to that. I don't know. I don't know if there is, but I would like to think that. Yeah, that's my sentiment as well. I'm not a believer in in many things, but um, for whatever reason that happened... 
it's very serendipitous and, and needed. Yeah. I had a conversation with another Yumber Yarder who also lives in the area and her name is Deb Barnhill and she's actually quite a good friend of Carol's. They've, they've created quite a friendship over Facebook and she knows a number of people I went to high school with. And Deb talked about her feelings on the whole situations and has connections herself to a few of the victims. She talked to me about her daughter's experience during the rampage. We have teenage daughters and, um, one of our older one, when this whole uh, COVID shut down school, she's really, she's having a hard time with not doing her regular, like she's a swim coach and a swim competitor and all that. So she, she wanted to do something and got her out of the house. So she went and got herself a job at Superstore, which is a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. So t- he dropped her off at work and then she texted him and said, we're on lockdown. There's, there's somebody, you know, they, they locked the store down. There's bad stuff happening around town. And we were like, holy crap. So, Having your child out into in the world when something like this is going on was it, it that was a very strange feeling. Like we knew we knew that she was okay. We knew that they had taken proper action, but um, it kind of put another level on it. Like you realize, like okay, I have one person I put out there, one kid. Like there were a lot of people who had their family out and about, um, out in the world, just doing what people need to do. Um, who you know, and this was happening basically in their backyard. It's so, it's just strange. Right. And she's fine. I mean, we, we talked to her. I was like, like, do you need to talk to somebody about this? Like, are you okay? She's like, honestly, mom, it was over so fast. I I felt really taken care of. I think the most disturbing thing was that she was he- starting to hear rumors really quickly. And that happens at a small town. Oh, even a large town. People want to speculate. People want, uh, they could just be misinformed and, uh, misinformation just can spread like wildfire. Yeah. Deb shared that she knew Sean McLeod and Alana Jenkins, the murder corrections officers uh, from Glenholm in uh, Wentworth. And here's what she had to say about them. The Jenkins uh, and McLeod home, and that's the, actually the couple who, who our family knows, is that the firefighters arrived, but they had to be held back from the scene because of the shooting um, the you know the, the shooting situation, so you know they actually had to watch the house burn to the ground because they couldn't go in there because there was an active shooter situation. I mean, like it's just unprecedented for this person to be this monster to be you know basically just roaming the countryside, shooting people and lighting fires and moving on to the next one. It's it's, it's there's I don't. It's really hard to, to understand, really hard to comprehend and, and to sort of put it into context of this tiny little place. Uh, Deb mentioned how close the corrections community is in the Truro area and how hard they'd been hit. So the, the whole, the corrections community, I would say, is extremely close in Truro as well. Mm. And Sean and Alana were very well known in that community because they were both in corrections for a really, really long time. Right. And um, I have some friends who are in that community. And, and I remember we used to always sort of mention, Tanya used to always say to each other, like, yeah, they, they keep to themselves because that's where they're safest. Like, they're, they're, they're a family. So I think corrections people are very, they sort of stay in their, in, within the community of corrections people. Like, they, they're all very close. They work in very intense environments and they have each other's backs all the time. And so they're like a family when they're out of when when they're out of the environment, they still spend a lot of time with each other. So um, the corrections family um, has been hit particularly hard with, you know, with this loss too. 
they're, I think that they're particularly, actually, I was, I was chatting with a friend within that community today. I kind of, you know, you, ch- you start to check in on your friends and I was sending one of my sort of, hey, checking in, call me, call me if you need me kind of texts. And she said that it's been, it's been pretty rough. It's, it's, it's pretty rough. They, um, oh, my friend's husband has worked with Sean at Spring Hill for decade, a couple of decades, I think. Like they've worked together for a really, really long time. Yeah. And, uh, I'm not sure like how that happened with them, like what their, what the story was with them. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the connection is. Um, like for that family, I, um, he has kids who I know. Mm-hmm. So, um, I am friends with his ex-wife and his, his he has kids who are in their early twenties and, and in their teens. So his two daughters and, and they were all very close. And, and so Sean and Alana, I think they've been together three or four years. I, mean, I remember when, when um, they started their relationship. So they, they've been pretty tight with the kids for a really long time. Um, I know that the kids, the kids were not at the house um, in Wentworth when that happened, they were, they were elsewhere. So his older daughter is married um, and has a, 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 da- a little girl. So she would have been at her family home. And then I, I guess the younger daughter who, who's 17 would have been with mom um, that weekend. Yeah. So uh, it, it kind of sounds like he, it, he went from port pick over to there. And I don't know, I don't know why, why he ended up there, but that he knocked on the door and, and just went at it and, and then burned the home by the time anybody knew what was happening. Um, they were they were gone and they couldn't get to the house because of the because of the shooter situation they couldn't get in. This is just mind blowing the scope of this tragedy. It reminds me a bit of uh, I don't want to say his name either, but the uh, fellow the terrorist in uh, Norway who then went to the island and that's that's the only thing comparable that I've been able to come up with. Well, you've got the long distances traveled, mass casualties, uh, yeah. Uh, Deb talked a little more about uh, Sean and Alana as people. They worked hard and they played hard. From what, from what you heard, they, they, um, you know, they both worked in the prison, but they were very social people. They loved their family. Um, they, uh, they had a two-year-old or soon-to-be two-year-old granddaughter who they absolutely adored. I've actually really enjoyed looking at some of um, their Facebook photos that Sean's daughters have posted of them um, with their with the little girl. And they uh, this time last year they took a big extended family trip to Florida, and um, there are pictures of them, you know, in the in the pool with the little baby and just doing their family thing. They were just kind of down home, small town people. Yeah. They were just, you know, I, I didn't, I know I, I, I'm not, I can't claim I knew either of them extremely well. I mean, I knew Sean for a long time, but not that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they were just, just kind of happy people who um, like to socialize and like to have a good time. Yeah. So, I just, he, he liked to fish. He, he, um, he loved, he liked his guy time. He liked to fish. He had really good friends he worked with at, at Spring Hill. Mm. He was kind of a guy's guy. Just regular folks. Yeah, exactly. 
Deb and I talked a bit about how people are feeling and how some, myself included, just want to come home to Nova Scotia right now, right now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And here's what we chatted about. Mental health-wise, I, there are people I worry about, um, mm. and I worry about you know me sometimes too. Like I, I you know we we I thought I was doing great, and then I was on a conference call yesterday with my work people, and they asked me how I was doing, and I burst into tears. Like it's just stupid stuff, mm. and it's it, it's again that feeling like well this isn't my loss, but it's Nova Scotia's loss, and that's that, that's kind of we all kind of take that on it's it's the kind of place where it, it doesn't really matter if it was your family member yeah it's so it's maybe it sounds corny but like Nova Scotia is our family I oh it's true you feel that don't you I totally feel that yeah you feel that okay another sentiment I've been hearing maybe you felt this is people have been feeling drawn to come home and they can't yep. but people like you know my heart is in Nova Scotia I would give anything to be there right now even though there's nothing that you can do for anybody here, uh, you know, other than, you know, emotionally support, which I guess is no different under isolation than it is from a distance. But people are feeling very, very much like they, if you're not in Nova Scotia right now, you're not where you belong. Yep. That's exactly how I've been feeling. You're feeling it that right now? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like I said to Carol, I said, I want to go home. Yeah. I just, I just, I, I, I feel very emotional saying this, but I, I just want to go home. Yeah. And like you say, I, I don't think I can do anything other than just be there. Maybe it's about sharing it with the people who are going through it. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. And I'm actually not surprised to hear you get emotional saying that because it seems like that's the, there's an emotional loyalty here. Mm. We are from here. Yeah. We are always from here, right? You were saying you you've lived half your half your life away, yeah. But you're still from here, right? Yeah. There's nothing that's ever going to change that. I've never, I've never heard the expression emotional loyalty. That's uh, really, really beautiful. Yeah. Well, that that is what uh, I mean. We call ourselves blue nosers, but uh, I think you know that loyalty, that tried and true and blue loyalty. I've, I've cried a couple of times watching, uh, you know, Niagara Falls be lit up in blue and, mm-hmm. uh, um, Banff, the church playing farewell to Nova Scotia on the bells and, mm-hmm. uh, the CN tower being lit up in blue, even though leaves suck. And, uh, <laughs> I had to slip that Jeez. in there, but, uh, I, I needed to break this up just a little yeah, bit. Yeah. yeah. It's been an interesting time. Next, let's hear from Sarah Jollymore. She's the mother of Emily Tuck's boyfriend. Here's what she wrote. Emily was amazing. She wasn't my daughter, but she fit right in like she was. When I first heard about Emily, it wasn't from my son, it was from my daughters, who had seen pictures on my son's phone telling me, Bubby has a girlfriend. I instantly was like, better not. He proceeded to tell me his girlfriend was 17 and had two tattoos. My mind did the mom thing. Say what? Oh, hell no. 17, you're 15, she has tattoos. What, what? I didn't realize how easily it was to fall in love with Emily. I met Emily. She came to our home after school. I instantly did the mom thing, asking a million questions. We had supper and she told me it was amazing. She never forgot to let me know she was thankful. I drove her home to meet her mom and dad. Her dad just reminded me of my dad. 
big heart, rough around the edges, and just anything he had, he would be willing to give or share. He asked about my family, which we came to learn he knew, my grandfather, and had stayed with a cousin of mine over some time. Jolene just smiling and asking for me to come down any time and visit them. Aaron proceeded to tell me I had a good son and made him do wood for his supper. And he may be sore, ha ha. Emily found a spot in my heart she loved with everything she had. She knew to make do with what you had. We don't have much either, and I I think that's why Emily felt at home in my home. We have love, each other, and a door open for anyone to join. I hate that we will have the hardest time getting back to that. She was a pure delight to have in my home. If my son wasn't listening to me or giving me a hard time, she always would quickly make my son mind. She was always ready to help me in the kitchen. My three younger kids loved when she came over because she would play Minecraft with them, talk to them, just treated them like siblings she never had, no matter how annoying their brother taught them to be. I will never forget coming home and her in my kitchen making cupcakes for us all as I had an appointment in town. She was a girl that was a jack of all trades. She could cook clean, play fiddle, work on dirt bikes, and carpentry. For Valentine's Day, she made my son a wooden card and a leather binding around the outside of the card. Tell me how many people have ever received a gift like that in their life. It was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen and so heartfelt. I could feel the love she had for my son. I'm glad he got to know that. And I am glad I got to see that. I am glad I got to know her and love her like my own. I was 17 when I had my son, so for me to see that much potential be just disregarded by a terrorist, it hurts so bad. I'm not quite sure if this is what you were looking for, but Emily was amazing. She was a lover and a fighter. She stuck up for everything and anyone who needed a voice who couldn't be heard. She was smart and sassy, which I loved. I try and find comfort knowing that they all went together, and that is how they all would have wanted it. They would have never wanted to leave this earth without the other. My heart broke and I threw up when my son said he was supposed to go down there Saturday. I miss them, and I hope they know how much my boy loved their Emily. My heart is broken. We can't make sense of this. We can't understand. I know we will come out of this stronger, but right now it feels like the healing will never end. Thank you so much, Sarah, for writing that. Uh, Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to write that. It really means a lot that you were able to share something that I'm sure was really painful for you to write. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, I want to thank Deb, Cheryl, and Megan for sharing with us uh, so deeply as well. Dennis, uh, it was good to hear your voice. The RCMP have a lot of questions to answer about this incident, and I'm sure there's much more to come. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of armchair detectives have been taking them to task. Mm -hmm. People are wondering why the emergency alert system wasn't used sooner or at all, and they believe it could have saved lives. RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell made a good point about the situation when asked if the gunman had been able to escape the area undetected and how that happened. Here's some audio of that. It is possible that the suspect was able to leave the area before the initial response. Um, and I can, well, I can imagine, I don't think it's difficult for non-police uh, personnel or the public to understand that it would obviously complicate things. You know, I, I've been a police officer for almost 30 years now, and I can't imagine any more uh, horrific uh, set of circumstances 
when you're trying to search for someone that looks like you. Uh, the dangers that that causes, the complications that that causes. Um, that will obviously was um, uh, an advantage that the suspect had on the police, that he had on the public, that he had on every person that he encountered uh, through the course of his rampage. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Um, I'm not qualified to opine on this, but someone in a post I read put it this way. Imagine every terrified Nova Scotian with a hunting rifle taking pot shots at RCMP because they're afraid. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's a very unique circumstance as in a lot of situations, I think there were opportunities where, uh, the RCMP could have done things differently and improved, but I think that they also were out there risking their life. Yep. In, in an example, somebody lost their life trying to prevent this individual. So we can't not hold people accountable for missed opportunities, but in the same vein, we have to remember that they were out there risking their life trying to capture this individual. Yeah. And also regarding gun control, there have been illusions made by investigators that the gunman's firearms were unregistered. Mm-hmm. So there will be endless debate about that for a long time to come, I think. Yeah, yeah. As there always is on both, there's leverage to be made on both sides of the argument, and there always will be. Um, yeah. So we'll leave this to the real experts. Yeah. And I don't doubt that there will be a lengthy official inquiry into this as well. Absolutely, there will, yeah. For now, what's left for all of us to do is to grieve and to love one another. Yeah. We'll post links to the official GoFundMe pages for the families and places where you can leave online condolences. We want to end with Lisa McCulley's version of You Belong to Me as sung by her and her kids on March 23rd, 2020. Here they are. Here's a little goodnight song to all our friends and family. We miss you from the McCulley's. As mentioned at the top of the show, our voicemails and Patreon shoutouts will keep till next week. We know you folks understand. Please hug your families and tell them all that you love them. Just do that for me, please. And don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody.